Let's understand the world a little better. I'm your host, Timo Wunderlich, and with me is Martin Dimitrov. He's a professor at Tulane University, University and an associate at Harvard and the author of Dictatorship and Information. Uh, let me dive right in. I want to ask you, what is the dictator's dilemma? That sounds interesting. Yes, um, thank you. So uh, the dictator's dilemma is really the motivation for writing this book. There is a large body of literature in political science that argues that dictators are fundamentally unable to uh, collect information that allows them to evaluate what level of opposition they face from society and what level of support they have in society. So as a result of this inability to collect information about popular support and popular opposition, the theory argues they over-repress and under-redistribute um, uh, public goods. So dictators have two tools at their disposal to govern. One is repression, the other one is distribution of public goods. So because they have inaccurate information, they cannot accurately target repression and redistribution. And as a result, according to this theory of the dictator's dilemma, dictatorships are brittle and short-lived. And this is true, except that it's not. So there are some regimes, and this is the motivation for my book, namely single-party communist regimes that enjoy a very long average lifespan, therefore suggesting that they have found ways to mitigate or perhaps even solve the dictator's dilemma. Uh, why are usually um, these regimes unable to collect data? I mean, I would assume not the only option is uh, from elections, right? Yeah, no, so this is the theory. And then what I show in my book is that although this theory is very influential, there's no empirical support for it. Um, and, you know, I mean, the dictator's dilemma is um, an argument that emerged. It's something that in political science we call a stylized fact, something that we all assume is true, uh, even if there's not that much empirical support for it. Um, as to why it emerged, um, I, I think, you know, that's that's a big, a big question. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a convenient way to uh, think about dictatorships um, at a time when it was very difficult to get a sense of their uh, inner workings. So, but this theory emerges in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and then in more recent decades, there are um, newer interpretations of authoritarian uh, rule, uh, which argue that actually the dictator's dilemma can be solved, and there are various mechanisms for doing that. One, of course, is the elections that you mentioned, uh, Timon. And um, where I, I, I stand on elections is, I argue that, of course, they reveal information about levels of popular support, but this information is revealed both to the dictator and to the masses. So if they realize that the dictator is unpopular, they can engage in collective action and um, um, subvert the regime. So this is not a mechanism that dictatorships uh, favor. They, they, they want other mechanisms. Um, another mechanism that reveals information, but again, not only to the dictator, but also to discontented citizens, is opinion polling. Um, I'm fairly skeptical about opinion polling, but when it works, it actually does tell the dictator what his level of support is, but it, it, this information is transmitted to the masses as well. And then finally, there is an argument, a relatively recent argument, that dictators would encourage um, investigative journalism in order to solve this information problem. And where I come on that is I argue that if this investigative journalism takes place in the publicly available media, again, this information travels upwards to regime insiders, 
but it also travels um, horizontally to uh, discontented citizens who can use it to engage in collective action. So what I'm arguing in my book is that dictators favor avenues that are internal, these are um, secret channels for the collection of information, and they allow for the privileged transmission of information to regime insiders rather than to both insiders and the general masses. Why does that information necessarily get through to the masses? When I do an opinion poll, why, why does the mass find out about the results? Well, because normally these opinion polls are published. I mean, the, the results are published in, in, in various outlets, whether it's scholarly research or in the media. Now, of course, there's secret opinion polls, and, and those um, have been practiced in autocracies. So the opinion poll itself um, may be a mechanism that is used. But what dictators do not want is publicly available opinion polls. The same holds for the investigative journalism. So, I mean, investigative journalism in the publicly available media, this is not something that dictators want. But in dictatorships, they are um, secret. They're classified newspapers, which are meant for regime insiders. So in those, in the internal ones, they do encourage investigative journalism. They just don't want the masses to, uh, to know about um, what, what is discovered and what is transmitted to uh, the leadership. Now, how do democracies, for example, um, get their information? Uh, just the ways we just mentioned, uh, opinion polls and etc. Or well, um, so uh, one answer that I could give is that I don't really work on democracies, but of course I do have opinions about democracies. So. I mean, there's certain aspects of authoritarian um, institutions for collection of information and of democratic institutions that overlap. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time in my book studying is the secret police. So, of course, there are intelligence agencies both in democracies and in autocracies. And one, of course, hopes, um, and how realistic that hope is, is a separate question. One hopes that in a democracy, citizens are protected from um, illegal collection of information about them, and in autocracies, this is not the case. Um, so leaving this aside, intelligence agencies, both in democracies and autocracies, operate in roughly similar ways, right? They need, they need staff, they need technology, and they need informants. Now, as to who they target, I mean, this of course differs from autocracies to democracies. Um, they're secretive in both autocracies and democracies. And in fact, you know, something that became clear to me as in the process of writing my book is that we know a lot more about intelligence agencies and autocracies than in democracies because a lot of these autocracies have collapsed and we now have information about how the intelligence agencies worked. And in democracies, for various reasons, um, intelligence agencies um, continue to be shrouded in a lot more secrecy. Of course, there's Freedom of Information Act in the US, but using it to get information on intelligence agencies is complicated. There have been, um, I mean, there's Snowden, there have been various other leaks, uh, but uh, in general, um, we, we, we do happen to know more about how these um, entities operate in autocracies. So, you know, one parallel is the intelligence agencies. Um, opinion polling exists in both democracies and autocracies. It, it's much more accurate in democracies because you know, one problem that um, emerges in autocracies is the so-called preference falsification, 
where citizens are afraid of sharing their actual views about the dictator. So if they're asked a direct question, um, the answer may not be honest. So uh, this is one reason why, although opinion polling was practiced in autocracies, the secret opinion polling uh, that, that I talked about, dictators did not really attach too much value to it because they did not uh, believe in, in the findings. Because the findings uh, suggested that the, um, the Communist Party and the dictator have a very high high approval rating, and there were other indicators that suggested otherwise. Um, but but it, this is a parallel. So uh, intelligence agencies and opinion polling is something that exists in both settings. Um, something that is, is of great interest to me is um, complaints. So again, I mean, citizens, when they complain, they actually reveal their opinions because a complaint is a request for service. You're unhappy, you being the citizen of, a, of an authoritarian state, you're unhappy about the provision of some type of service or you want um, some type of benefit from the state and you're not going to lie about what you want. Now, I mean, complaints exist in democracies as well, but this is usually not how people get what they want. So, um, so sometimes, you know, the, the actual avenues may be fairly similar, but the frequency of the usage differs. And certainly this public versus um, classified aspect of the transmission of information also differs between autocracies and democracies. And uh, finally, because my book is about communist regimes, China being the main case, but I also talk about the East European communist regimes that no longer exist. There is one feature which I feel is unique about the communist regimes, and that is the communist party itself. So the communist party is a huge machine, both for the collection and for the analysis and then for the transmission of information. So they do, uh, the party does all of these things, collects information on its own. It also receives information from other um, uh, um, uh, institutions that engage in the gathering of information. And then trans it transmits that information to uh, regime insiders. And, and this uh, is, is a difference. So of course, you know, in the context of the US, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party collect information, but, but that information is uh, compared to what the Communist Party Already collected minuscule in volume, and it is primarily linked towards um, uh, assessing the chances of electoral electoral victory. Whereas in communist regimes, elections they exist, but they're not uh, what communist parties live for. There's all of the governance in between uh, these election cycles, and um, they need very detailed information in order to engage in in sophisticated anticipatory rule, which is something that emerges in communist regimes as they develop over time. Um, did, I, I, maybe I didn't quite get this, but did you say in uh, democracies it's more unusual unusual that the uh, public um, complains? The public complains, um, but um, the the issue is, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of frequency, uh, what I find in my book is that the frequency of complaints in communist regimes is surprisingly quite high. So this, to me, was an unexpected finding. And um, the other finding is that um, as the economic situation deteriorates, the volume of complaints declines and citizens uh, start engaging in protests. So there is this trade-off between complaints and protests. And uh, what communist regimes prefer is complaints to protests because complaints are um, they're private, they're individual. Citizens approach the Communist Party or some government agency with a concern. And as long as this concern is resolved, 
citizens will, will go about uh, living their lives. If the concern is not resolved, they become more likely to engage in, in protests. And the communist regimes distinctly dislike uh, protests. So this is something they strongly discourage. But yeah, so you know, one, uh, one consequential difference between communist and democratic regimes is the frequency of complaining. So in a democratic regime, of course, you know, there is the option of, of complaining, but citizens have many other ways to um, get the benefits that they want. Um, and you know, complaining is not as, as frequent. And um, the regimes do uh, act upon these complaints. Yes, although their capacity to act, of course, is constrained. And what is what is relevant for me is what are these constraints? So um, long-lived communist regimes realize that, first of all, they do need the complaints. And secondly, they need to respond to these complaints at a level that is satisfactory. So not every complaint, of course, is, 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 is read. Not every complaint is responded to. But there is an optimal level of responsiveness. And what is relevant here is that as long as this optimal level of responsiveness is maintained, citizens will continue to participate in the system and they will continue to complain. And the likelihood of these citizens engaging in protests would be lower. So what I um, find out in my book and I documented is that as responsiveness to complaints declines, then the likelihood of citizens going to the street and engaging in protests goes up. And then the question is, well, if responsiveness is so important, what determines high levels of, of responsiveness? And I find that uh, one of the primary factors that contribute to high levels of responsiveness is um, the availability of um, resources. Um, so what, what, what happens is when, when communist regimes experience economic slowdown, their capacity to respond to these complaints is limited. And um, this, this, of course, occurs in the 1980s in Eastern Europe, but it also occurs in China before 89. So we oftentimes forget that you know both Eastern Europe and China had their versions of 89. And in both settings, um, there were economic difficulties. So there were economic constraints that limited the capacity of the regime to, to respond to these, to these complaints. The other finding that I have in my book about responsiveness to complaints is that, of course, it is easier to respond to complaints in a centrally planned communist economy than in a market economy like China today, because the government in China controls a lot of resources, but it doesn't control as much as what was controlled by, for example, the Soviet Union or East Germany or, or Bulgaria under central planning. You know, these are these are regimes that, that I talk about uh, in my book. Yeah, so there, there are some constraints to responsiveness and they have to do with um, uh, the control of economic resources and the overall makeup of, of, of the economy. So this ratio between uh, responses and complaints, is that something that solely you measured or do you think that also is a ratio that is measured in these uh, regimes? Oh, I use internal documents on that. So this is not, I mean, this is not uh, something that I myself come up with. And what's relevant is that these internal documents, you know, these are classified archival materials that have now become available to scholars. They themselves um, um, uh, record the level of responsiveness. And then they indicate whether this responsiveness is sufficiently high or it's low. So it is from those materials that I come up with these estimates of, of the optimal level of responsiveness which seems to be uh, between 30 and 40%. And 
I don't know what we think about that, right? Because, you know, maybe, you know, if, if we don't really think about complaints and, you know, what percentage of complaints should result in a, in a positive resolution, we may think that, of course, every single complaint should be, should be um, analyzed and it should be responded to. And then once there's a response, it should be a positive response. But, but actually, this is, this is not how the world works. Um, and this, yeah. So, so th th this is what the documents indicate that um, thirty to forty is 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 a reasonable rate. Lower than that is is not. And and what we observe in China today is that responsiveness to complaints is probably as low as ten percent. Right. So this is very very low. Um, and um, the willingness of citizens to approach the complaint system has been declining, and um, correspondingly, there has been an increase in protests. And uh, what the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government are quite committed to is, uh, first of all, maintaining this complaint system, although some scholars have argued that it should be abolished, and all of these grievances that citizens have should be resolved through the court system. But the Chinese Communist Party is committed to maintaining the system and it is also committed to um, increasing the usage of the system uh, because they understand um, better than, than, than scholars do um, this, this relationship between complaints and protests. And they don't want uh, to, to have a high level of protests because, of course, protests can go out of hand, right? That's the, that's the issue. That makes sense. Why, but why don't they hire their uh, – why, why isn't their number high? Why don't they want to change that? I mean, I'm assuming they know similar, um, they, they have similar ideas uh, like you do have about these uh, numbers. And if they know they're just at 10%, why don't they change that? Well, uh, because um, although we might think that um, the a dictator has unlimited power, there, there are constraints. And um, the constraints to improving responsiveness in a classic communist regime were, of course, a result of, of economic, um, they were a result of the availability of economic resources. In contemporary China, um, I mean, there are all these arguments that the Chinese economy is slowing down, which of course is true, but I don't think the main constraint in China today is uh, the limited uh, amount of resources. Uh, what we do have is a vast country that is in many ways decentralized. So the capacity of the Chinese Communist Party to ensure uh, certain outcomes, especially at the local level, is limited. Um, and you know that that that, from my point of view, is is the main the main constraint. That what we have is, it's a hybrid economy, right? The state is extremely important. I actually don't believe, um, you know, there's some scholars that think that most economic activity in China comes from private firms. I think there are a lot of firms with um, mixed ownership, so they're in part private and they're in part public. But but even if we but but even if we think that. Um, close to 50% of the activity comes from private firms, then that is 50% of economic activity that the Chinese Communist Party cannot fully control. Of course, it has many levers at its, at its, its uh, uh, disposal, but it, it is not able to control it to the extent that economic activity could be controlled during central planning. So the party knows everything that I know, um, and there, there are multiple indicators that it is concerned um, uh, about, about the volume of complaining. Uh, but there's a limit to what it can do. 
So it is doing certain things, though, and uh, one of them is that um, the complaints uh, bureaus uh, in China, which had a, a, a peculiar um, control uh, a mechanism where they were controlled both by the party and by the government, uh, in the most recent reorganization in March of this year was shifted under full party control. So, of course, you know, the party is more important than the government in China. And what this restructuring is, is indicating is the ongoing uh, value um, that the Chinese Communist Party assigns to uh, to complaints and and its desire to increase uh, their numbers. Interesting. Do do you have numbers for um, other authoritarian regimes? On complaints? Yes. Uh, complain responsiveness. Uh, responsiveness. Yeah, I do. Um, so, uh, in the book is uh, although China is the one case that um, I think most people are interested in. Um, given China's size and its importance, uh, both uh, economically and geopolitically, uh, this is a comparative um, study. So I do have statistics on complaints in countries like um, the Soviet Union, East Germany, Bulgaria. I also have some statistics on Cuba. And what I find is that in these classic centrally planned economies, there is a higher level of complaining than there ever was in China, even under central planning, right? Because China, when it had a centrally planned economy in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in the, in, in for much of the 1980s, because, I mean, we all think economic reforms begin in the late 1970s, but they don't really get going until after 1989. So uh, for for most of this period up to 1989, um, complaining in China is an urban phenomenon, and the urban population is around 20% of the population. So, um, I mean, citizens that live in rural China do have the option to complain, but they utilize it in much lower numbers. And it, it, it's a very different situation in, in Eastern Europe, where complaining um, um, tends to span both the urban and rural divides, and also these societies are much more urbanized. Um, and, on, and, and the other difference is that the welfare state, the socialist welfare state in Eastern Europe is much more expansive in terms of its commitments to provide various um, benefits and services uh, to the population. So in China, for complex reasons uh, that have to do with the extent of the socialist welfare state and the relationship between urban and rural uh, uh, populations, just in terms of, of sheer numbers, um, the uh, frequency of complaining when we adjust for population, because of course we have to adjust for population, we have to do it uh, per million people, is much lower than it is in, in Eastern Europe. And then, um, you know, we do have great shifts of people to urban areas. Um, currently, um, uh, most of China's citizens do live in, 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 in the cities. But um, the level of complaining has never caught up uh, when we're just for population with what it was in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and um, the reason for that um, has to do with the fact that, you know, currently China does have a market economy, obviously, and, and the central state um, is responsible for controlling less of um, uh, these um, services and benefits than um, it, it, that than uh, was the case in the East European regimes uh, during communism. But you know, I also have um, complaints information on Russia, for instance, contemporary Russia, Russia under Putin. And what I find is that complaining persists um, even in non-communist authoritarian regimes that do have this history of of a communist uh, complaint system. 
And the difference in, in contemporary Russia when, when compared to the Soviet Union, for instance, is that complaints to the party are, are quite limited, right? So the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was the main recipient of complaints. What we have in contemporary Russia is that the office of the president of the Russian Federation, so Putin's office, is the main recipient of these complaints. But what's, what's fascinating uh, for me is the nature of these complaints. So um, to the current day, um, the most frequent type of complaint in Russia is about benefits and services. Um, citizens complain about, about housing. They complain about uh, municipal, municipal services. Uh, they also complain about various problems that they have in the workplace, like non-payment of wages and, 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 and the like. And, and what's remarkable is that uh, during communism, the complaints were, were quite similar. Um, so people complained about municipal services and housing. Right before the fall of um, authoritarian regimes, maybe you have data on that, um, were these ratios high or low, extremely high or extremely low? Yeah, um, and I'm glad you're asking because, I mean, those are some of the things that emerged for me uh, from the archives and they were unexpected. So what I found is that as these communist regimes are experiencing economic difficulties and as their capacity to engage in redistributive policies is restrained or constrained, rather, the willingness of citizens to complain declines. So objectively, um, citizen frustration increases, right? It's, I mean, uh, the, the, their economic difficulties, their increasing shortages, uh, there, there is restructuring of the economy, there is uh, the introduction of the notion of uh, unemployment and, and all of that. Um, so um, citizens are not getting happier as we're moving to the second half of the 1980s, um, and the economic situation is uh, deteriorating both in China and in Eastern Europe, but the volume of complaints declines. So this, of course, is counterintuitive, but when we think about the relationship between complaints and protests, um, it is fully logical because the volume of complaints declines, but the number of protests increases. And um, citizens are exiting the complaint system where they transmit information about their grievances in regularized, predictable ways to the regime, and they're going in the street where things can get out of control. And, and what is relevant for me is that you know, in the archives, both in China and in Eastern Europe, uh, the East European example is from Bulgaria, this understanding of the volume of complaints and what, is re what it reveals to the regime, this is something that emerges from the archives. So uh, we, there, there's a quote in my book, um, and this quote is, is from Bulgaria, where the Bulgarian dictator is told that there are no complaints. And um, Todor Zhivkov says, okay, well, this can mean two things. One is that people are completely satisfied um, and they, they really have nothing to complain about. And this is in the second half of the 1980s as the economy is deteriorating. So that's one possibility. They're satisfied. They have nothing to complain about. Or alternatively, they no longer trust us, so they're not complaining. So this issue of trust, the willingness to transmit information about your grievances to the regime in the expectation that the regime will solve them and will give you what, what you need is, is something that emerges from the archives. For me, this is how communist regimes understood complaints. And, and this is something that um, I also have evidence from, from, from China about this particular understanding 
of the value of complaints as an indicator of citizen willingness to participate in the system. And of course, trust is, um, it's a loaded term, but I mean, this is the term that is used both in Chinese and in English. And, you know, we could, we can have arguments. Well, does it really translate, uh, sorry, both in Chinese and in Bulgarian, this is the term that is used. And we can have arguments about, you know, how, how well it translates into English. Can you really trust an authoritarian regime? But, but, but that's the word that the regimes themselves use about, about the value of these complaints. So um, citizens participate in the system, they transmit their grievances, which means that they're willing um, to, uh, to abide by the rules. And, and when responsiveness is low, they go out into the street. What other key indicators or ratios are there uh, for, for measuring public opinion? Well, uh, I mean, there is the, the actual opinion polling um, and um, I am, um, but maybe quantitative. Other other quantitative factors. Well, so with the opinion polling, I mean that the, if 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 it's conducted um, according to uh, to uh, scientific standards, I mean it is it is quantitative. Uh, but I mean, so on the opinion polling, uh, right? I am I'm in general generally skeptical about its value, especially under conditions of high levels of fear when citizens are asked about their support for for the party directly. But um, what we observe in the 1980s um, and also in contemporary China, I mean, especially in the last decade, is that levels of fear are generally declining. So opinion polling reveals uh, high levels of uh, criticism of the regime than in, in previous time periods. So opinion polling um, uh, has become quite interesting, even for a skeptic uh, like me. Um, so uh, opinion polling is, is certainly uh, an indicator. Um, um, uh, complaints are an indicator. Um, and can, what's, can what's I interrupt real quick? Um, yeah. Opinion polling, um, is there a standard question, meaning maybe um, how do you like the government or else? Is there a standard questions? Um, right. I mean, it, it, it of course varies from country to country and uh, it varies over time. But there is a question, um, um, do you support the uh, central government? Um, and that is a, a question that of, of all the ways to assess support for the regime, it's probably the least informative because when, when this, that question is asked directly um, in an authoritarian setting, citizens are likely to um, misrepresent their level of support. Um, there are other ways to ask. There, there are questions that one could ask about specific government policies. Um, those are less sensitive. Um, there are also questions that one could ask uh, not about the central government, but about local um, levels of government. Again, this is less sensitive. And so this is something that um, opinion pollsters in communist, but also in other authoritarian settings, They learn this over time and they learn what types of questions are more likely to elicit genuine, uh, well, what types of questions are more likely to elicit answers that are less subject to preference falsification. Um, there's always some preference falsification, but uh, certain types of questions under certain settings of high levels of fear are likely to result in high levels of preference falsification. So in terms of the mechanisms that can be used to assess public opinion, I mean, of course, um, uh, there, there is um, the information that citizens voluntarily transmit in the form of complaints. 
Opinion polling, I argue, in many instances is coerced. I mean, we normally think of opinion polling as, okay, so citizens volunteer. But when levels of fear are high, um, citizens may not trust that the answers that they give to opinion polling, uh, to opinion polling questions, will in fact be um, uh, uh, kept anonymous. Um, and, and this is something that emerged um, during interviews that I did for the book with opinion pollsters from uh, the former East Germany, but also from Bulgaria. And what they told me is that it was very difficult for them in the 1970s and in the 1980s to convince the participants in opinion polling that this is actually going to be, uh, that, that this is anonymous and that their responses cannot be linked to them. Um, all right, so so we have complaints um, which are voluntary. We have opinion polling, which is which is a little bit mixed, and oftentimes citizens consider it to be something that is that is coerced. Um, so their participation uh, is not always uh, voluntary, and then we have uh, mechanisms which are truly involuntary. So information is collected about citizens that can reveal their level of opposition to the regime, but it is collected from them against their will. And you know, here come the uh, various intelligence uh, agencies, uh, which of course um, exist in autocracies, uh, as, as we discussed um, earlier today. And they have a very extensive network of operation, which relies on full-time employees, on sophisticated technology. Of course, technology evolves over time, so sophisticated for its time. Um, and then also on uh, informants, um, so citizens who spy on other citizens. So why do you still need informants when uh, in, in, in China, for example, I think there, are, I can't say how many, but there are a lot of cameras, for example, and um, with Snowden uh, there, uh, we're shown that there are other ways uh, to get information as well uh, via technology. Why do you need informants? Great question. Um, so um, nobody knows how many cameras there are in China, um, but we do know that their numbers keep increasing all the time. Hundreds of millions, that's one estimate. Nobody has said a billion cameras, right? But you know, hundreds of millions. How many of them work? That's a big question mark. Uh, but you know, what the cameras give you is information that is not sufficiently precise. And this is also what the computer algorithms give you. So, you know, somebody is doing something that may look suspicious. You don't know whether it actually is suspicious until you're able to collect other types of information on this individual. And um, you do need humans uh, who can give you the finer grained information that would help you to interpret the images that you have collected or the data on this, person, on this person's uh, social media activity. Um, so what, what I observe in my book, and I, I documented, is that the number of informants has actually increased just as the penetration of technology in China has increased. So more technology gives you more data, but in order to interpret the data, you need human beings uh, who can actually help tell you what the data means and what these images mean. So, um, so that's, that's one of the findings uh, in my book. How many informants are there in roundabout? This is a tough question to uh, to answer because, of course, the government doesn't publicize these numbers. So um, what I'm using is actually uh, the result of an opinion poll. I mean, so here here I come, right? You know, the skeptic about opinion polling, but there is there is one uh, one opinion poll where citizens are asked a question: Have you volunteered um, uh, to be a visible public informant? in the last year. Uh, and this is a nationally representative survey. And from this uh, data, I estimate that about 3% of the population in China 
um, or visible informants. Um, so what we don't know um, is, uh, and this, this is just for one year, and then for other years I'm using um, other sources of data, not opinion polling. Uh, but they reveal they reveal similar um, similar trends. So um, what what we don't know is the share of secret informants. Um, there, 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 there are various estimates, and you know I I I I, I go over those uh, in my book. Some of them come from actual documents. Other others come from uh, from from well uh, from scholarly research. Um, so. The percentage of informants, um, about 3% visible informants, um, and then some percentage of, of secret informants. We oftentimes think that East Germany um, during communism was the most densely penetrated society in the world. And what's relevant um, um, here is that, of course, the different estimates of the share of informants in East Germany, but they vary uh, between 1.5 and 2% of the population. So if China has 3% and, and higher than that, this makes it the most um, heavily penetrated society with informants in the communist world. And, and this is happening just as cameras and, and algorithms are increasingly available. So uh, what is the actual share of informants? That's a question that nobody can truly answer, right? So there, there are different estimates. But what is relevant is that they have not disappeared. And in fact, if anything, they're more important uh, now when technology is becoming more prevalent. Very interesting. How, how does a... Uh... How do, does that process look like? What does a typical day of an informant look like? Um, I mean, you. Are. Um, I, I, uh, I think, um, I think on that. Um, I mean, our our capacity uh, to know. Uh, um, uh, well, so there are different kinds, right? So, I mean, that's one way to answer that question, right? So they're the visible and then they're the secret. The visible informants actually wear armbands and they, they patrol the streets or they patrol their neighborhoods. And they come across information about various irregularities that is then transmitted to, to the police um, and, and to the other authorities or to the party, right? So the day of a visible informant is being around the neighborhood and, um, keeping keeping his or her eyes open about what is going on and how does he so, report it he how is it he reported just... using using apps normally um oh, okay. yeah um so because i mean of course with 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 the apps and 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 then there there, there are centralized mechanisms for for uh compiling the information that is transmitted through these apps and then analyzing it it, it just makes it easier for those who are receiving the information which is uh, the police and and the party um so the a day in the life of a visible informant is um relatively boring a day in the life of a secret informant is, of course, a different story. And you know, when it comes to the secret informants, there are many different kinds, um, and uh, they tend to have more um, specific tasks rather than just walking around the neighborhood, uh, or, or you know, or you know, in the streets of a city and, and looking for for irregularities. So. Um, you know, in East Germany during communism, there were over a dozen different types of secret informants. Um, and um, China, of course, has a range of them. So every communist regime has a range of secret informants. Um, and um, they have more specific tasks 
They also get better compensation than the visible informants. And they're also running a higher risk uh, because, um, of course, they can be exposed um, and then um, they can get into trouble. How reliable is that information from the informants in comparison to those exp uh, opinion polls, for example, where you not necessarily can trust them? Yeah. Um, um, how reliable is the information? Um, one thing that we um, we keep hearing about um, in, in societies where um, former informants have been exposed um, as informants is that they just made up their reports. Um, you, you do hear that in the context of East Germany. You hear it uh, when they're high-profile informants um, elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And um, <sighs> there is, of course, the possibility that you know people make stuff up uh, but your question is how reliable is it in comparison to the opinion polling and you know where i stand on opinion polling is that people misrepresent their support for the regime because they're afraid so in fact um it would be a fascinating project to uh, come up with some type of a quantitative estimate of the share of um, secret police informant um, uh, data that is made up versus the uh, relative frequency of preference falsification. Um, so I, I actually have never thought of it that way um, compared compared to uh, to opinion polling. My sense is that it would be more accurate uh, the, the secret police. And the reason for that is that um, information is is always cross-checked uh, when when we're dealing with informants. So uh, the secret police does not rely on a single informant. Um, you know, if it's a high-level target, there are multiple informants, and they're all asked to uh, to collect information. Um, there are full-time employees that are assessing the value of this information and its quality. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that you know incorrect information will not will not um, uh, get in, but um, the 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 evaluation of the quality of that information, um, the um, assumption that secret police have that informants may lie. They, they actually distrust the informants, which is why they have uh, multiple informants and they cross-check uh, and, and analyze the information. I feel that you know this, this um, is, is there on purpose and it's there um, as a way to uh, improve uh, the accuracy of the information that is collected. I mean, the value of the information of, or of I would assume increases uh, with uh, the individual that is selected, and I wonder how that is being done. Like, how who will be chosen as an informant? Yeah, this is a this is a great question, um, Timon. I'm having the sun that is blinding me. So, do you think are you, you're going to edit this? Correct. Uh, usually, they are um, long form, uh, no edit, so no cuts. No edit. Uh, usually they are, but you can quickly close the window or so. I can I can edit that out, of course. I'm just gonna move myself um, into uh, <laughs> so. a different a different part of my office. Um, right. So, um, do you want to ask a question again on how they're chosen, or should I just answer it? Yes. Um, how are these informants chosen? 
Right. Um, the informants are chosen based on um, certain um, characteristics uh, that they have. So if you're a visible informant who is patrolling your neighborhood, um, you are normally a, a, a relatively uh, older person who knows um, your neighborhood and your neighbors quite well. A lot of these informants tend to be female and they tend to be uh, retired. And retirement age in communist regimes is something that occurs early in life, um, mid-50s for women. So they have time and they have knowledge of the neighborhood that they can then capitalize um, and, and, and act as informants. Um, those who patrol the streets are more likely to be men, um, again, for obvious reasons. Uh, but the visible informants are less interesting than the ones that are clandestine. So the clandestine informants are, again, uh, chosen because they have a certain skill or certain, uh, certain characteristics. So if you want somebody to um, spy on um, intellectuals, this person will most likely be an insider. So he or she will be an intellectual. Um, if you want somebody to spy on criminals, um, the person that you choose will be somebody with a, a criminal background. So in fact, we find that um, some of the informants that focus on uh, criminal activity and actually state security in communist regimes didn't just hunt political dissidents. Uh, they also um, investigated certain types of, of economic crime. So the informants uh, that focus on criminal activity tend to be um, former, former criminals. Um, so they're chosen uh, with um, um, the idea that um, they will be able to collect specific types of information. Um, and then um, the quality of the information that they collect is uh, routinely checked and, and evaluated. Um, and um, the other feature of these informants is that they're not informants for life. Um, they, they normally um, serve for a period of time and then they, um, the, their, their files are closed. Uh, the information about them stays, um, stays in the system. So this is why we have some interesting cases, um, such as uh, a certain agent Bolek, who is also um, um, uh, Poland's first democratically elected president. So Lech Walesa uh, functioned as an informant for the Polish state security uh, during communism. And he denied that uh, fact until a file was eventually uh, uh, made available uh, after the Minister of the Interior uh, passed away. And, and he, he had, the, the communist period Minister of the Interior he had taken that particular file home and then uh, his wife tried to sell it um, to um, the uh, research institute that analyzed the state security files. And she was told that no, she's not, this file will not be bought from her. She actually has to uh, hand it over. So the file um, um, indicated that Lech Valenza was an informant for state security. Um, and what's relevant here is that he did that for a few years in the 1960s. Why was he chosen? He was chosen because he was already, um, it was obvious that he had dissident tendencies. So he was a high value asset for state security. He could inform on others in those dissident circles and allow state security to have better information about the activities that they were planning. Um, how do we deal with the fact that the first democratically elected president of Poland was a state security informant? That's that's a that's a tough question. This is why this he was he kept denying this for over twenty years, and eventually, incontrovertible evidence emerged. 
Um, I've I've one separate question. I um, heard about this in one of your podcasts you uh, did with I think with the UN Council on. No, I I can't. I don't know the name. I'm sorry. Um, you mentioned in Bulgaria they monitor dreams. <laughs> can can you explain that? <laughs> Yes, um, you did ask about what are the other mechanisms for <laughs> collecting opinion polling, I mean, sorry, for, for evaluating um, public opinion. And I thought that if I don't get to dreams, you might ask me about, about them. Um, yes, because of course, dreams are such an unusual source of information. And um, I mean, there are concerns uh, that people have in autocracies that their dreams might be monitored. Um, there is a book about dreaming in the Third Reich where um, a psychiatrist um, in Germany um, uh, in, in the Third Reich uh, encountered patients that were very concerned that even dreaming, I mean, this extremely private activity may be something that is monitored by the state, but there's no indication that dreams are being monitored in the Third Reich. And then there is um, um, a very influential book by Lisa Widin about Syria. And there, again, uh, there is this fear that a soldier expresses that, you know, like his dreams might be monitored. But I mean, those accounts are um, anecdotal. I mean, we don't have actual evidence. Um, uh, but the Bulgarian archives reveal there's one report uh, and the report is about um, subversive dreams that peasants were having um, uh, during the period when land is being collectivized in Bulgaria. And the subversive dreams are that they're going to eat their cows instead of giving, give them to the state and that they're not giving their land over to the state. So um, what does one do with that? I mean, it's, 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 it's very hard to, to work uh, with dreams, which is why we, we just have this one single report that that emerges uh, from the archives and these dreams in the dream report itself um, the, the the report also mentions rumors so uh, dreams and rumors uh, tend to be in the same category where they reveal people's anxieties uh, but it's it's very difficult for the regime to figure out what to do with them, um, and with rumors at least um, they kept they kept monitoring them. But 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 the dreams um, it, it seems that you know this was um, from the point of view of intelligence collectors a waste of their effort. Um, when it comes to rumors, uh, so rumors are used as a technique for evaluating uh, anxieties uh, in 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 communist regimes. Over time. Uh, regime uh, insiders began to be interested not just in any rumor, but in representative rumors, so typical rumors. And these typical rumors remained fairly constant in communist regimes. So for instance, in Bulgaria, there was from the 1960s onward, a rumor about raising the retirement age and the retirement age was never raised uh, during communism. So it remained 60 for men and 55 for women. Um, there were also persistent rumors about price increases and, and communist regimes um, tried to maintain price stability. So increasing prices was, was of course, um, something that was politically, politically very difficult for communist regimes, even if it made uh, economic um, sense. Um, and, you know, I, I also have evidence of rumors being tracked in, in China, but this capacity to uh, track representative rumors emerges slowly and over time. So um, I um, have a 
an extensive source of information uh, on China from um, from the initial uh, 16 years of communist rule, uh, day by day, this classified internal newspaper for the leadership. So there are hundreds of rumors uh, in this particular source but um, they, they tend to be random. So in this or that province, there's a rumor about this or that, uh, rather than uh, these are the typical rumors, these are the typical anxieties of the people. So this capacity to uh, track representative or typical rumors emerges uh, later on in, in the lifespan of communist regimes as the information collection systems become more sophisticated. Uh, you just mentioned uh, in the beginning um, psychotherapists, and I wonder, are they are they allowed to give information that they um, f from their clients? Um, well, um, in a communist regime, um, yes, nobody is safe. But the uh, therapists that I mentioned are um, um, this is a. This is a case in the Third Reich, uh, right? So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't work on, 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 you know, on Nazi uh, regimes, uh, but, uh, but yeah, surely, I mean, in, in, in the communist um, uh, world, um, psychotherapy, or you know, forced psychiatric treatment, was something that was used against dissidents. Um, it, it. Um, is um, a technique that um, the Soviet Union relied on, but but as did other communist regimes. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, so if, if a psychiatrist um, is uh, responsible for um, um, forced psychiatric treatment uh, against um, dissidents, then um, he he or she uh, certainly produced reports on the political leanings of those of those individuals. But this is not something that I've analyzed um, systematically. Also wondered um, in market research, for example, it is typical uh, before launching an advertising campaign to um, to do focus groups where you test uh, for different advertisements. Um, is that something that is being done in these regimes as well for um, policies or maybe just or statements or maybe just the um, the way that they are, they are formulated? Um. Well, um, so China has a notice and comment system. When uh, legislation is uh, being proposed, there is a period of time, um, usually a few months, sometimes six months, sometimes shorter than that, uh, during which um, citizens are encouraged to send feedback uh, on this uh, proposed uh, law. Um, how seriously the feedback is taken is, of course, a, a, an empirical question. Uh, but this feedback is solicited. Um, and um, this is not unique to China. Um, you know, communist regimes brag whenever there's a new constitution, for instance, um, or an amendment of the constitution, they say, and we got 10 million suggestions and proposals. I have not looked at that particular um, issue. I mean, the, the, the legislative amendment uh, proposals and the constitutional amendment proposals, um, I know the numbers. Uh, I don't know whether I trust them. Uh, but um, the, the, the general, um, um, I, I, and I, I need to, to qualify this, I don't know whether I trust the exact uh, statistic of, you know, let's say 10 million uh, suggestions. I mean, of course, they, they, did, they did take suggestions from the public. Um, 
yeah, um, focus groups. I'm sure they were used somewhere, but I mean, this is not this is not something that that I have done research on. Okay. Um, now, since you have done a lot of research um, on all these kind of different systems and um, how they conduct their information, where do you think it's your personal opinion? Where do you think it starts to become unethical? Now, this is a great question. Uh, where does this start to become unethical? Well, um, I think when it comes to complaints, um, we have an easier case because if I complain about something, I reveal information to the government about my grievance. And these complaints tend to be about material benefits. They're not about political matters. Um, of course, I mean, there is the possibility of retaliation against complainants, but communist regimes are aware of that possibility and they try to limit it because they know that if there is the fear of retaliation, the level of complaining will decline and then the likelihood of engaging in protests would, would, would just increase. And so I feel with complaints, we don't really have... Um, um, such a serious concern about ethics. But then, of course, involuntary extraction of information from people. So even like listening into people's conversations, which is uh, called the spontaneous registration of public opinion. I mean, because you're asking, you know, what, what are the, the mechanisms? Well, you know, I mean, listening into people's conversations. Is that ethical? Um, it, it, it's, it's a tricky case. Um, uh, certainly reading people's mail I mean, that, that of course, is, is unethical. Listening into a phone conversation rather than, I mean, I think a conversation in public, perhaps, I mean, if people are just chatting, I mean, you know, and if there are others around them, if they're not using a hushed voice, presumably, I mean, they, 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 they may think that, you know, somebody's going to overhear. So maybe it's not, it's not super secret. But, you know, a phone conversation, I mean, there is the expectation of privacy. Um, a written communication, whether it's a traditional letter or email, there is the expectation of privacy. Um, recruiting your spouse to spy on you. I mean, there, there are some cases from East Germany, which are very high profile, but East Germany did not patent this, this particular technique. And, um, you know, lovers and, and uh, friends and spouses were recruited throughout the communist world and continue to be recruited um, to spy on, on certain individuals. So, so I do feel that when it comes to the involuntary extraction of information, um, there's of course uh, a, a very serious um, ethical concern. And when people voluntarily transmit information, especially about their socioeconomic grievances, um, I feel the, the ethical concerns are, 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 are limited and and then there might be information that falls somewhere um, in, in 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 the gray zone, like these public conversations. I, I don't I don't quite know um, uh, you know what 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 one would make of that in terms of ethics. Uh, but the public conversations are not particularly informative, right? So because the identity of individuals is is rarely ascertained. So somebody said something when they lined up um, and and you know during during a period of shortages they criticized the regime. Well, okay, I mean, or or somebody made a joke, um, and and the, the the particular somebody you know the identity of the person is not known. Or there was an overcrowded bus, 
and um, uh, an informant for state security for the Communist Party who engaged in the so-called spontaneous registration of public opinion overheard something. So in, in case like that, if, if we cannot link the statement to a particular individual, I feel that you know, this is transmitting valuable information to the regime. People are unhappy because the bus is overcrowded or because there are meat shortages. Uh, and, you know, riots might emerge in Poland, for instance. You know, there were a lot of riots that were linked to, to the lack of meat or increasing the price of meat. Um, so, so this is a great question. So I think, you know, where I would come, uh, um, um, where I would, I would, I, I think my final answer on that would be that the involuntary extraction of information certainly crosses numerous ethical lines. The voluntary provision of information, um, many fewer. Now, before we come uh, go to our second segment, a quick few rapid fire questions. Um, I would like to ask you, is there anything um, I should have asked that I didn't or anything else you want to add? Well, you didn't ask me about my method of archival ethnography, uh, which is, um, I mean, that is uh, in, in terms of what I do in this book, um, the book is based on um, um, formally classified government generated documents. And what I'm arguing is that I read them using a particular technique. And this technique is immersion in these government documents with the idea of uncovering their um, uh, the, the internal logic that the information collectors um, uh, develop over time when they think about um, systems for collecting information about popular, uh, popular opinion. Um, and what emerges from these documents is a very different logic from the one that we have in the scholarly literature. So for instance, uh, first of all, uh, these internal documents show that the dictator's dilemma is a real problem, but it's also a problem that can be solved. It can be solved by collecting information. But the avenues that uh, communist regimes develop for collecting this, this information are very different from the ones that are emphasized in the literature that believes that the dilemma can be solved. So that literature emphasizes the value of elections, the value of protests, the value of opinion polling, and the value of um, um, commercial um, um, investigative um, uh, media reporting and um, you know I argue that you know these mechanisms reveal information both to the masses and to uh, regime insiders so my method of archival ethnography um, uh, reveals uh, what commerce uh, insiders themselves wanted to read how they um, acquired it and what they did with it once they had that information. So I think that may be the one issue that we didn't talk about, which is um, what did I do uh, with these documents and um, how did I read them um, and what did they reveal uh, for me? And what they revealed is, is this internal uh, uh, logic that regime insiders um, uh, develop uh, in terms of um, thinking of this problem of um, uh, uh, popular discontent. Thank you very much. Then with regards to your time and your uh, lighting situation, <laughs> um, I will uh, quickly go over the uh, rapid fire questions. I would be um, grateful if you could answer them in around about two to three sentences. And um, yes. Uh, they don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to answer um uh in w about your research or about your book but maybe just what comes to your mind if you had a big poster let's say on times square everybody would see it what would you write on it democracy is the greatest form of rule Do you have a favorite quote? 
No. Or one that you really like? Oh my goodness. Uh, one that uh, I really know, like. Um, if something comes to mind. If not, I will just move on. Nope. I think okay. let's move on. Um, a controversial opinion, I believe, what almost nobody else does. Well, not too many people believe that um, communist regimes um, had good systems for collection of information and that they took popular complaints seriously. Um, I mean, that, that still remains a controversial opinion. And, you know, my arguments that there was a socialist welfare state, I mean, that is something that, that, is, still, uh, that is still controversial. So I feel that, you know, on that, I actually do believe and, and there is um, strong empirical evidence to support my belief. Um, uh, I, 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 this, is, this is still a, a relatively uh, controversial um, um, opinion. What is your newest, biggest insight? My newest biggest insight is linked to a book that, that I am finishing, and this is a book about uh, party building. Um, so um, China is still a communist regime. And this, this again, is perhaps a controversial opinion because um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of scholars focus on economic development, and they believe that China um, is, is a country where the private economy is dominant. And what I'm working on is uh, something called party building. So developing the structures of the Chinese Communist Party and creating such structures in private firms, in non-governmental organizations, and um, in, in other um, civil society groups. So I very strongly believe that the Chinese Communist Party, um, understanding the Chinese Communist Party, is central to getting insights about contemporary China. What would you have liked to know when you were 20? I don't know about 20, but when I was 10, uh, this was 1985. So I think if I knew that communism would collapse in 89, um, I probably would have would have had a very different childhood. Um, so when I was 20, I was um, a second year student in college. Um, um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, so for me, the big, the big change was when I was 14 and, and communism collapsed in 89. Um, so um, yeah, if I knew when I was, when I was 10 that uh, communism would collapse in four years, um, that would uh, probably lead to uh, to a different um, to a different. Certainly, my life would be different. Yeah. So I think ten rather than twenty. If I knew that communism would collapse. Yep. Okay. Wait. Let me think about how how best phrase this. What's the biggest problem in your area? You currently see. Um, oh. What's what's the biggest problem um, you see when it comes to information gathering from states? So this this problem depends on the quality of technology, and in the contemporary world where um, cameras are cheap and computers are ubiquitous, there is a vast amount of of information. 
but this information is not always sufficiently granular. So the biggest problem from the point of view of a communist regime is how to get more granularity in the information that it collects on its citizens. Um, historically, though, at earlier stages in the development of communist regimes, the problem was to collect any information, right? Because technology was not sufficiently developed. So um, yeah, so the biggest problem today is sifting through the vast amounts of low quality information that, that regimes have. And in order to do that, they need human informants and they need those individuals to be numerous and of high quality. How would you spend $10 billion to make the world a better place? I would invest in education. I mean, that, that of course, is, is the key, the key concern. Um, we still have parts of the world where there, there's, there's, there are high levels of illiteracy. And, and, and as we all know, I mean, this, this tends to be a gendered phenomenon. So, um, you, you know, on that, on that, I think I have a very, very clear answer. Education, um, especially um, educating uh, women uh, who disproportionately suffer uh, from, um, from, from, from the current situation. Well, thank you very much. Um, that was it. Um, I'm really grateful to have you, um, to have had you as, as a guest here. It was really interesting. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Timon. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and um, I, 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 um, the, the lighting situation was not, was not <laughs> optimal, but um, there we are. Thank you. <laughs> That's not a problem. Oh, um, is there anything else you want to maybe promote a message? Uh, like I said, something to promote, something else you want to add, something you want to say, obviously your book, um, A Dictatorship and Information. And what will be the title of your new book? Do you already know that? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, it's called The Adaptability of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and this is a short book. It's called An Element. Um, um, and um, um, uh, the, the book just focuses on how the Chinese Communist Party reacted to 1989, both uh, 1989 in China, but also 1989 globally. So globally, that's the collapse of communism. And then domestically, it's the Tiananmen Square protests. So I'm looking at um, several different adaptations that the Chinese Communist Party has implemented since 1989. And I assess how successful they have been. And then I engage in some prognostication about their uh, success in the future. Perfect. Well, again, thank you very much for being here. Thanks a lot. Thank you.